Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, thank you. As we come to the scriptures today, we invite you to come, Holy Spirit, that you would come and fill your text, Lord. Come and fill my words. Come and fill our hearts and our minds. Come and fill this community that we might know and love and be led to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We're continuing today in our Lenten series called Living Lent. Over these next few weeks, as we move towards the cross and resurrection of Jesus, as we follow him on his journey, well, we'll be looking at various issues related to the Christian life. Last week, we looked at the issue of temptation, what it is, what it involves, and how you can overcome it. Today we're going to look at really the central issue of our lives, the central issue of the world, the central issue of our Christian life. And it's the question that if it isn't answered within you, will prompt your fear and your doubt and your worry, most of the struggles that you have, most of the strivings that you have in this world. The question is this, is there anything in all of creation Is there anything in all of creation that can separate you from the love of Christ for you? I'm going to say it one more time just because of whatever that was. Is there anything in all of creation that can separate you from the love of Christ for you? This is a crucial question for us to know and answer. Let's start with our gospel lesson. A very familiar passage, I think. It it comes um, right in the heart of Mark's gospel. It's in chapter 8, which is is literally the middle chapter of the gospel, but it's also the turning point of the gospel as Jesus has been revealing himself and showing himself. We get this high point in which Peter rightly declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember, Jesus has asked, what did the people think about me? Peter answers rightly, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And then Jesus immediately began to teach his disciples about his love. Now, he doesn't use the word love, but he describes absolutely what love entails. Verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus is describing what love entails. And he wants Peter and he wants us, he wants you and he wants me to know just how much God loves us. Now, a few days ago, my wife, Catherine, put together a baby present for a family member of ours who's getting ready to deliver their first child. And she, in the midst of this kind of package of things that she gave them, uh, put in one of our favorite children's books. Uh, It's by um, Sam McBratney, and it's called Guess How Much I Love You. Um, Some of you may know the book. It's a story of big nut brown hair. That's a British word for rabbit, big nut brown hair. And the conversation that he's having with little nut brown hair, that's the little rabbit, as the little rabbit is being 
tucked into bed. And they kind of go back and forth about how much they love each other. The story culminates with little nut brown hair saying, I love you all the way to the moon. And big nut brown hair saying, I love you all the way to the moon and back again. Jesus came to show us who God is and just how much God loves us. He wants us to recognize the length and the depth to which God goes for love of you and for love of me, for love of the people of this world. The scripture says that God is love, and that's not fluffy language, by the way. There's nothing weak or intimidating about that. It's a powerful kind of active reality about who God is and what love is about. What does love do? Well, it does whatever is necessary for the good of the object of its love. Love does whatever is necessary for the absolute good, joy, and happiness for the object of its love. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And he must rise again. Now, why is that? Because that's what we needed the most. That's what this world needed. That's what you need, and that's what I need, this powerful love of God. And, of course, Peter completely missed it. In fact, he began to rebuke Jesus because Peter only understood the way of the world. Peter, still at this point, only understood what he had seen in others. And Jesus said, basically, Peter, you're missing the boat. You completely have in mind not the things of God, but the things of man. Peter, you're still all about acquiring. You're still all about achieving. You're still all about you, Peter, about what makes you happy, what you think you need to do in order for you to have a meaningful life. You're still about success or popularity or fame or power. All the things, that's the narrative of this world. All the things the world tells us will satisfy our hearts and make us happy. He says, Peter, you're still all about that. But I've come to show you that that's the mirage of the world. And what this world is truly about is the love of God as expressed through me, Peter, through Jesus It's all about God's love for you. Friends, God created you. The reason you're here, God created you to be the object of his love. God created you because God absolutely loves you. Before you ever did anything, good, bad, or indifferent, God loved you. And because God loves you, because God loves you. He has done everything necessary to forgive you, to save you, to make you his own, to overcome the narrative of the world, the narrative of our lives. He's done everything necessary to keep you from being separated from him for all of eternity. And it came at the great cost of the cross of his son. That's love. That's the powerful love of God. The Son of Man must suffer. Not the Son of Man might suffer. The Son of Man must suffer and be rejected 
and be killed and rise again. Of course, that's what Paul really fleshes out in that lesson we had in Romans chapter 8. If if Mark 8 is the center of Mark's gospel, Romans 8 is really the center and the heart of the book of Romans. And, And it may be the pinnacle and high point of all the epistles because this suffering Savior, this suffering Messiah, well, we get fleshed out what that love is all about, what God's everlasting love is for us. Listen to these words that Paul writes in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? The world is always asking that question. If there is a God, is God for us or is God against us? You might be wondering that this morning yourself. Is God for me or is God actually against me? Is God for me or is God against me? Well, Paul unpacks it. When he uses the word if, if God is for us, it's the same word in the Greek that can also be translated since or because. Since God is for us, because God is for us. There is absolutely no more fundamental truth to get settled in your heart that God is for you. And if anything is rising up in you right now that says God is against you, God is not for you. I would encourage you to really take a look at what that is and what's inspiring that. God is for you. In fact, say that out loud. God is for me. There's a story about a man named Eugene Lang, who was a very successful businessman. Um, He had become a a multimillionaire. He was in his 60s. He came from a very impoverished background out of East Harlem. He was invited to go back to his junior high school, that's middle school in today's parlance, and to give the commemoration address at their graduation. And he's standing there and he's talking to these graduating middle schoolers. And, you know, a 60-year-old guy graduating middle schoolers, that's not always a natural fit, right? And he's trying to tell them about the benefits of education and, and about how important it is to stay in school. And they're completely tuned out. And he just went off the script of his speech. And he said, look, I'm going to make you a promise right now today. If you'll stay in school, if you'll work your hardest then I will provide a scholarship for you to go to college. And that woke him up a little bit. And by the time, you know, he was done talking about that, he was getting applause and cheers. Well, he didn't just talk about it. He actually did it, right? He started a foundation and he, through influence, got other very wealthy people to contribute to the foundation so that over the course of time, they they offered scholarships to thousands of kids coming out of this school in East Harlem. But he didn't just put his money there. He also put his time there. He put his effort there. He gave them what they needed. He helped the administrators. He helped the schools. He helped the teachers. He provided computers. He provided tutors to help these students. He gave them the tools that they needed. 
And eventually one of these students, when being interviewed later in life about what it meant, said this, I finally knew what it meant to have somebody who was for me. Paul says, God is for you. God is for you and not against you. If God is for us, Paul asks, well, then who can be against us? And he gives the answer. He gave his own son. He gave us what we needed most. He didn't give us a program. He didn't give us principles. He gave us a person. He gave us his heart. He gave us his best. He gave us his all. He gave us himself. He gave us a savior in his son, Jesus. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You talk about love. Love in action, love demonstrated. It goes on in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who can bring a charge against you if God has already given his son for you? How will he not graciously with him give us all things? If he's given his son, then there's other things in this life he'll give us also. It doesn't mean we get every little thing we want. That's the health and wealth gospel. It's not in the Bible. But he gives us everything we need to know him, to live in his love, to live from his love in this life. In verse 33, Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who can bring a charge against you? Now, people will bring charges against you, accusations against you, words designed to tear you down and cause you to not only feel shame, but see yourself not the way God sees you. Some of you have been living your whole lives under the charges that others have brought against you. The careless words of parents, the cutting words of an ex-spouse, the damaging words of a friend or a sibling that just absolutely wrecked you and accused you and left you empty. You need to understand that our adversary, the devil, is called the accuser of the brethren. And, and he speaks in an insidious kind of voice. It's a voice that uses a lot of shoulds and a lot of oughts and a lot of you betters and why didn't yous and how could you and how dirty you are. And often he'll speak through the people in our lives. I mean, he even spoke through Peter. Lord, you can't suffer. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of men, not the things of God. You're too dirty. You're too far gone. That's not the voice of the God who loves you and gave his son for you. He never says that. He might say there's places within you that need cleaning and healing. But his words are always toward life, toward hope toward goodness, towards his love. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Well, Paul tells us, God is the one who justifies you. It doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks about you, says about you. 
if you stand in the love of God and the words God has about you. One of the very early scriptures I memorized, and it comes out of me all the time, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit, the law of life, the law of God, the spirit sets us free from any accusation. Paul asks, who's going to condemn you? Well, Jesus Christ died for you, so that's pretty big. That's pretty astounding. But he didn't just die. He didn't stay dead. He was raised. And now he's at the right hand of God, constantly interceding, constantly with you on his mind, interceding for you before the throne of God. There's never a moment of your life that he isn't involved in, even though there are times when it's going to feel like, how could he possibly be there? The price that he paid for our sin was completely paid, totally enough. There is no more wrath for you if you're in Christ Jesus. And that means that there doesn't have to be any fear in you of God. Now, there's the fear of the Lord. That's a holy wonder and an awestruckness that will often put you on your face. That's different from the kind of fear that would keep you from moving toward God. The fear of punishment is what that is. But when you've allowed the love of God to so fully fill you, change you, define you, there's no more fear. There's no more fear in love. His perfect love, we're told, casts it out. Nobody can separate us. In fact, that's where Paul takes us to that question I began with. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Now, let me tell you, there are going to be things that go on in your life that you're tempted to believe are proof that God doesn't love you. Or that somehow you're separated from him. And he gives us a whole list of them there. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine. That's pandemic, by the way. Nakedness, danger, sword. Like the trials, the traumas, the difficulties, the heartaches, the brokenness. Sometimes even your own sin will cause you to think, surely he cannot love me anymore. And Paul says we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. That means that you're way more than a conqueror. You're a super conqueror. Not because of your strength, but because it's all about his love for you. He says this, I am sure, I am certain, I am confident, I completely know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When that settles in your heart, 
and you see yourself the way God sees you, you know what it does? It frees you up to love him back and to love the people around you because you're not striving anymore. You don't have to strive. You don't have to be defined by your weight or by your career or by your bank account. You suddenly can be defined by the one who's crazy in love with you, who is completely for you, I will never forsake you and will never leave you. That's what it means to take up the cross. Die to your own diseased view of yourself and live from God's view of who you are based upon what his son has done. Let's pray. Oh Lord, have mercy upon us and save us from our fear that the cross was not enough. We thank you, Lord, that you did it differently and you still do things differently than we do. Would you set us free from all the, all the false narratives that try to define us and give us the gift of living fully, completely, and totally in your love, that we would know this love that surpasses our knowledge And it would transform us that we might reach the world around us with that love you have for them. Jesus, it's in your name and it's for your sake that we pray. Amen.